U.S. in the midst of the second part of the Cold War uh, sees Central America as the proverbial domino of communist Soviet influence in the Americas. My fellow Americans, I must speak to you tonight about a mounting danger in Central America that threatens the security of the United States. Central America has a long record with the USA. They have a record of invasions. They have a record of wars. They have records of interventions. And they have a record that has permeated Mexico, the record of training for violence. Hello, and welcome to the Making of a Nacho podcast. I'm your host, Stacey Wilson-Hunt. And today with us, we have talent from the gripping new documentary, Blood on the Wall. I'm happy to be joined by directors Sebastian Younger and Nick Quested. Well, welcome, Sebastian and Nick. It's so nice to have you here with us. This film, Blood on the Wall, is it's a movie about immigration, but it's about so much more than that. So, Nick, I would love for you to set the stage a little bit for people who haven't seen the film. What exactly this movie documents? It's a specific time and place, but it's also obviously illuminates a much larger and longstanding problem in Central America and the United States. We made this film to, to personalize the rhetoric um, that was coming out uh, from the government in, the, uh, in 2016 and 2017. We wanted to put a face and personalize who was actually migrating and the reasons that they were migrating. And so in the end, we followed the caravan from Guatemala all the way uh, across Mexico and two of our characters we followed as they crossed into America. Um, and then we combined that with the political and social history of Mexico. How did Mexico get to where it is now? And you can't divorce the push factors of migration from the politics of narcotics in the region and the corruption that ensues. Hmm. That's a wonderful synopsis. Thank you. And Sebastian, tell me a little bit about how and when you decided to partner with Nick on this project. I know you've worked with him before because it was sort of un, unraveling at a, at a quick pace. So when did you decide to jump into the action? Well, Nick and I have an ongoing professional relationship. And basically, once we when we finish one film, we start thinking about the next one. We had a few different ideas. Nigeria was one uh, couple of other countries around the world that were struggling. and But we, we sort of landed on Mexico Um partly because of our conversation with Nat Geo. Mexico seemed like a really kind of urgent uh, and frankly poignant and painful example of the world's problems. It definitely had a sense of urgency about it, that's for sure. And I would love to talk about your filmmaking approach. You know, not only is it challenging to have two directors, but the sense that I've heard, Sebastian, you were in New York while Nick was on the ground in Central America. Is that true? Yeah, I um, I was not in Mexico at all in uh the late 90s, I was expelled from Mexico. I was given 24 hours to leave because I was investigating something that was sensitive to the government, which was the massacre in, in the town of Actial. Hmm. Um, and um, and so I, I didn't I didn't want to risk going back. I have two young children, and so I, I tried to help from New York, which which mainly meant being part of the conversation in the edit room as we tried to shape the film into something compelling and um, and and important. Hmm. And Nick, tell me a little bit about how you planned your trip to Central America. Where did you begin? Did you hire a local crew? And how did you manage all those logistics on the ground? That must have been very difficult. Um, yeah, we hired a pretty much entirely local crew. The DPs were Mexican. Uh, our local producers, obviously, were Mexican. And that was a conscious thought. 
I'm a large, noticeable uh, um, man. And it, being on the bridge, I stood head and shoulders above people. So it was important that we had you know, a variety of points of view when making this film. Were you worried about keeping a low profile or as low of a profile as you could? Uh, we always try and keep a low profile. Um, we shun the... Um, and we would make jokes about um, the crews in Suburbans uh, rolling three deep in Suburbans. We don't do that. We use local taxis and 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 our fixers' cars because they're just less conspicuous and you make less of an impact wherever you are in the world. Mm. We didn't plan on shooting the caravan. We planned on using migration as um, a theme that we were gonna, going to examine. But the... We were actually in the highlands of Chiapas in uh, Actial, taught in La Mesa, because in Actial, in 1998, um, 38 people were murdered by a priesta militia. And so we were using, and no one was prosecuted, certainly not the intellectual authors of the crime. So we um, were talking to the elders of the village, which they call La Mesa, and we heard that the caravan was forming. So this is, we were, this is, you know, two days into production. So we pick up our bags from San Cristobal and we drive from San Cristobal to Tapachula, which is, you know, an eight or a nine hour drive um, uh, over some, you know, interesting roads. Um, <laughs> so, and the caravan itself provided a very intense logistical problem because the caravan keeps moving. And as the caravan started moving north, more and more press turned up um, when we were on the bridge, there was a few news crews and a couple of wire photographers, uh, mostly freelance. Um, but you had to be very flexible to be there at that point. Um, but as the caravan moved north, you started to see the, you know, the, the TV anchors turn up and do a, a live in front of the caravan or the, the, the food line. You know, you saw Jorge Ramos like with his whole team with lights and. You know, makeup and hair and and what was your sense of how the story was being covered by the local media as opposed to the messages that we were receiving in the United States well I think that the local media always tends to find the most dramatic um, and news at the moment is, news is a business and um, you need dramatic imagery uh, to sell advertising between your newscasts I mean in many ways, you've got to look at news as entertainment in um, in America, particularly. Mm. And certainly the images that we were seeing here were, oh, there's these criminal mobs. But what I love about the film is that what we see is there was a lot of peace. There's a lot of connection among people who may not have otherwise known each other. And tell me a little bit about how you and Sebastian worked to secure all these wonderful subjects who gave you so much honesty and so much of their time. We wanted to find a variety of people that we thought were representative of the caravan. So we found an extended family and we found a group of unaccompanied minors. We actually followed five, four, five families in total, but their stories weren't as complete as the story of Ludiora, Sara and Sharul. You know, as a journalist, and I, and I do consider documentary film journalism that adhere, has to adhere to the same high standards of print journalism, um, in journalism, you obviously can't interview everyone and put everyone in. Uh, you, you're using people who, are, who represent a story, and it's on you to choose people that, that, that 
represent a story accurately and honestly. You, if you mm. want to sort of put your thumb on the scale and create a narrative by choosing people that will that will create a certain impression of a story, you can do that. But that's not really journalism at the end of the day. So mm. we have to be very, very careful that not only are you looking for compelling people because you want people to people to watch the film, but you're looking for people that accurately represent the broader story you're trying to tell. And that's where the ethics of journalism come in. And you have to be very, very um, honest with yourself about the, the narrative, the purity of the narrative you're building. Hmm. Well, that is what's so compelling about the film is that you also then embed with members of the cartel, smugglers, people who are sort of openly and brazenly in, in some scenes, packaging the drugs to smuggle across the border. And I would love to know, why do you think those people agreed to speak to you? Well, they absolutely wanted to humanize their situation. And they also wanted to have a, you know, it's almost uh, in, in many ways, um, this film is a eulogy for uh, the crew that we were with in the mountains because the only one that's surviving of that crew is the guy that's on camera, mostly. Um, they were mm. all involved in a dispute in Culiacan four or five months later uh, with the judiciales, the local police, and, and it ended up in, you know, it ended up terribly for, for, for them. Like the three nephews and the boss were all killed. Oh, it's terrible. There, there's no existential crisis for, uh, for a narco. They live as fast as they can, for as long as they can to make as much money as they can because they know that they're either going to die or they're going to go to jail. So um, they live precisely in the moment um, and they don't worry about what they're doing because they have this very defined you know, code of conduct. They live in a certain way and it's a warrior code, a mountain code, a family code, and um, I, they talked about this constantly with us, about what they felt was right and wrong. And selling narcotics to Americans did not even come close to uh, being something that they felt was wrong at all. Hmm. There was always going to be an appetite for drugs in America. Someone's going to provide that um, product. And if it's not me, it's somebody else. So it might as well be me. Right. So baseline survival, it sounds like. Yeah, the choice in, is survival in those mountains. They are close to the metropolitan center of Culiacan, but takes six hours to get there through some of the most um, uh, rugged roads that I've driven on. Um, there's no infrastructure, except for the infrastructure that's been provided by the um, narcos themselves. El Chapo provided water and electricity to, the, to both the villages of La Tuna and La Palma. Um, so um, you have to ask what does the government provide for these people in the mountains the narcos provide security and dispute resolution that's right and there, there's a striking moment in the film where someone says that the cartel is more trusted than the government and the police and that really speaks to what you've just described as the loyalty to who's going to provide what I need to get through my day so it becomes a very easy decision yeah. really the problem comes when the uh, cartel becomes parasitic on its own people, where they start charging rent because they can't um, make uh, their ends meet in any other way. So when they start charging rent to all the people that um, 
are in their territory because they have no ability to sell gasoline or steal gasoline or or sell drugs that's when um you start to see a situation like acapulco where you have you know neighborhood by neighborhood battles over territory And Sebastian, I would love for you, for you to pull back the lens a little bit. You've covered so many conflicts around the world. What is so uniquely challenging and vitriolic about the U.S.-Mexico relationship? And how has it become so terrible in the last, say, 40 years? Oh, that, <laughs> I mean, that's a, that's, a, that's a complicated question. Um, the conflicts that I've covered are, are overt conflicts. They're wars. And wars can be brought to an end through negotiation. Um, most of them eventually are, as we're seeing in, even in Afghanistan 20 years later. Um, Mexico is not at war per se. It's an extremely violent society, which is um, has, com- has been deeply damaged by endemic corruption in the government and by the drug trade. And it just happens to be across the border of, uh, from... The United States, one of the most or the most powerful wealthy country in the world, and that's 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 going to be problematic. That's going to be complicated. Um, I think the what really happens. I think all problems are solvable, manageable. People from Central America that come here are not really coming here as opportunists. They're coming here uh, because they're desperate to get out of a very dangerous situation, particularly with their children. Um, but all everything gets politicized. And I think the problems actually really come more from the nature of our political moment in this country than from the um, the the physical realities, the political realities of the border and of Mexico itself. Um, President Bush um, tried to solve the immigration problem. His own party stopped him. Um, there's some very nasty politics involved in this, particularly on the GOP side, mm. that I think makes it... Uh, almost impossible for this country to come to a sort of wise and compassionate conclusion about what to do. Hmm. Well, it's so fascinating because it's a crisis that people are told is a crisis on the news, but if they weren't told it was a crisis, they wouldn't even really know about it. (laughs) It's not something that they're opening their front doors and there's this, you know, melee in their front yard. Do you see Nick a way out of this way of thinking? And, and how do we reach a, a, a greater plateau of understanding about this? Yeah, I agree. I think the news tends to the most dramatic. So um, they look for images of, of the caravan. And the caravan, when it at, was at its strength, was a very powerful image. And you can look at the caravan in the same way you could look at the protesters throughout Europe and throughout America at the moment who are marching on the streets. They just chose to march through Mexico. Right. How do you change the um, immigration um, policy? You've got to reduce the push factors that come from those countries. So mm. how, the real issue is how do you reduce the corruption and see that the aid that America does give these countries, how is it effectively uh, utilized and not stolen by the corrupt regimes of the Northern Triangle, whether it be the Moraleses or the Hernandezes in Honduras or the Bukeles in, in, in El Salvador. Right. It's extremely, extremely densely complicated. I do want to talk more about the filmmaking process. 
in terms of when you're on the ground and you're in the caravan, Nick, and you're, you know, among the people shooting all this amazing footage, how are you managing the technology of everything you're capturing? Are you uploading your footage at the end of each day, sending it to Sebastian for safekeeping? <laughs> how are you making sure that you don't lose any of this precious material? We have a, a, a triple, if not quadruple, backup procedure where at the end of each day, a, the footage is copied to a drive, and then that drive is copied twice. One drive is then, um, well, then we might break it up into two or three days. Uh, one drive is sent to Mexico City. One drive we try and FedEx back home, and then we maintain a drive with us on our person, and we try not to erase the cards. And what kind of cameras did you use? Um, we used Sony family cameras. So we would use uh, FS7s uh, in the field a lot. It's got a large, uh, large uh, sensor size. We can use cine lenses. Um, and it's also portable enough that you can run when you have to. Um, <laughs> uh, and then for the interviews, we used uh, Sony F5s um, uh, for the sit-down interviews. We, then we had a Mavic, uh, DJI Mavic 2 Pro drone, which we, I used a lot. Um, there were some great drone shots. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, because the, the scale, I mean, it's the only way to really understand the scale of the caravan. This is like eight to 10,000 people that are walking along these roads. I mean, some of the shots go on for, you know, two or three minutes, like that, maybe even longer. So that's a caravan, you know, the drone can fly at 25 miles an hour. So, wow. It, you know, we're talking a stream of people that is densely uh, populated for, you know, two or three miles, if not longer. It's incredible. And Sebastian, were you reviewing footage as it came in and starting the editing process while Nick was still shooting? Or did you wait until you had everything done and then you started that process? Well, we had an amazing uh, editing team and... I would come in periodically and I wasn't reviewing raw footage. I mean, sometimes I would take a look at it. There was a huge amount of material coming in. And, you know, because I wasn't on the ground, I didn't have the story in my blood, as it were. So I really had to um, take my cues from Nick and other people about what the context of the story was, because I just unfortunately could not report it myself. But Sebastian's objectivity really is helpful because I could have spent hours, you know, sleeping on some cold, you know, floor and walking miles and, and then, you know, advocate for this shot or sequence because of the intensity experience in acquiring the shot. But sometimes the shots just don't work and you have to let it go. And, hmm. um, and you know, I do have a habit of uh, continuing to shoot until, I, I, until they take my passport away. <laughs> but we have to thank Nat Geo for allowing us the amount of time it takes to make these type of films because there were three sequences of production. There was first was there's the caravan and then there's Acapulco. You know, so the caravan exists over three to four months, then Acapulco's over you know, two to three months, and then Sinaloa and the border was over three to four months. So Wow. That amount of time enables us to schedule interviews with people who are inaccessible and, and, and establish their schedules, you know, months in advance. And it allows us to, to recalibrate our story um, uh, to, you know, because we all go in with preconceptions. And as Sebastian has said before, 
good journalism is when you disappoint your preconceptions and you actually um, and you find the truth or as close to the truth as you can portray. Right. And you have to challenge your own sense of, of comfort and and what you think you already know. And I think that's what you've done really well in this film. Tell me a little bit about the basic food, water availability of those in the caravan. And Nick, you were you were with these people. Did you struggle to to find food and water yourself? And how did these people live during that time? And and at the at one point, this young woman says, you know, I have to go back home. It's easier to eat at home. And she says she's two months pregnant. She has to eat. Well, I think there's a there's a um, a enormous change in the attitude towards the caravan. So while the caravan was in in Guatemala and in southern Mexico, um, everyone on the sides of the roads, not everyone, but many many families on the side of the roads would hand out bags with water. They would make rice and beans and boil eggs for the members of the caravan. And the towns that they stopped in would provide as much as they possibly could. And you're talking about how do you feed 8,000 people? Um, So... Uh, but they'd only stay a night and then they'd move on. They stay a night, they'd move on. Um, so food was, food, uh, clothing was available in southern Mexico, but it started to change um, around Puebla. And in Mexico City, it was an organized uh, reception. And then from Mexico City to the border of, of Sonora and Baja California near Tijuana and Mexicali, they were basically bussed nonstop from, um, from really from about Guadalajara all the way through to um, the border. Uh, the, the towns found it easier to, and states found it easier to bust them and cheaper to bust them than it would be to have fed them multiple times as they walked through the state. Right. And so, and then the north of Mexico is is much more inhospitable both socially and uh and meteorologically it's a dry and topically it's it's a dry desert in the north of mexico there and it's cold at night and it's blazing hot during the day Hmm. um and so not only was the reception by the people super cold they're vulnerable to organized crime um in any possible way whether it be kidnapping or extortion or coercion. And, um, and then the, the local population felt that their public services were already stretched. And there were many protests in Tijuana against the caravan. That's what I was going to ask, the, the local response in Mexico to the caravan. So you did see people pushing back. In the north, absolutely. There, okay. were, there was a, a couple of... Uh, reasonably large demonstrations and the general antipathy towards the caravan arriving there was 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 um palpable mm. and it that contrasted to the previous mass immigration of haitians who came and stayed in tijuana and now some of them are still embedded there and you, not embedded but like stranded there and they're you know they're now part of the community they seem to have got very low level jobs and uh, or they're trying to work as macaladores or... So that's interesting. They were more open to essentially Haitian refugees than refugees from their own part of the world, essentially. Yeah, but there's a very different... Uh, I, there's a very, you can see the way the people look that they're, they're ethnically different. Hmm. 
That's very interesting. And I think America, in America, we have the same perceptions of what does a refugee look like? What does an immigrant look like? And it's, this is clearly a global, global phenomenon. So Sebastian, with a story like this, it has no end and it's ongoing. How do you know when a film like this is, is done and you have all the footage you need to start the editing process? The sort of magic that happens in an edit room um, is a little mysterious. And I think the, 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 the best strategy is to simply shoot as much as you can for as long as you possibly can and then keep trying to shoot for a little longer. And then when the people who have hired you insist that you go home, then, then you try to squeak out another few days. And then finally you bring all the footage back and make a story out of, out of what you have. I mean, really it's a, it's a matter of, it's a matter of taking the, the maximum advantage of the time that you have rather than figuring out, okay, let's shoot the amount that we need and go home and make a film because you really never quite know how much you need and the kinds of things you need. You don't really find that out till you're in the edit room. Hmm. So you so you overstay your welcome as much as possible on the ground and then and then start editing. <laughs> yeah, basically, basically. I mean, you know, drive you know drives are are cheap, right? And you might as well fill them up because you can't you can't create the material later in the edit room. So you you just shoot as much as possible and and. Uh, I mean, I did that in my first film, Restrepo, and that's how we've always done it. And sometimes there were little odd moments that you uh, did not seem important at the time that provide some crucial transition between scenes or something. Like, it's pretty crazy what you end up needing. There's very little relationship to what you think is important when you're shooting and what turns out to be important when you're editing. There's virtually no relationship between those two things. Sometimes some very, very dramatic stuff. You, you think, oh my God, this is amazing. This is going to be the centerpiece of the film. doesn't even make the cut. And it's just very, very hard to know. Right. And that's why editing is so painful and so wonderful at the yeah, same time. That's right. I would love to talk about, Nick, the your approach to scoring the movie. It has a really beautiful soundtrack and it's very sparing and and. It's moody and it's sad and it's beautiful and it really evokes for me kind of this entire story. Tell me about your approach to that. So um, we're conscious of this and, and we wanted to tell the, uh, the story of, uh, that we were approaching through themes. So um, Andres, our composer from um, Mexico City, um, we, we developed this from the very beginning. Like it's, uh, there's a theme for everyone in the film. And um, we also changed the instrumentation of the uh, score from very southern instruments to a much more Norteño uh, sound once we got to the border. So it was, uh, hmm. there was these constant evolutions of, of sound. And, and, and what is a Norteño sound for people who may not know what that is? Well, a Norteño sound is is got um, is much more uh, um, like a org, what's the the uh, accordion driven, mm-hmm. and um, so you can feel the the change in instrumentation from the sort of drums and and uh, uh, of the south to the organ of this the north. Hmm. I love that. It's really beautiful, and it it feels, and I love that it feels. Mexican it feels made by Mexicans and I'm sure that was very important to you yeah the whole film is apart from the two sequences in Guatemala and in Phoenix and then LA was entirely shot in Mexico it's wonderful and sort of giving uh, listeners a sense of timeline the Trump administration effectively shut down 
system for asylum seekers at the border at this point. And the caravan, in essence, was halted from entering the U.S. around April 2019, if I'm correct. Can you describe the status of the caravan people now? Have they all returned to Guatemala and Honduras? Have some of them stayed in Mexico? What is your understanding of their status? There was a an option for the members of the caravan where the Mexican government would pay for their repatriation, well, provide them repatriation. So I'm sure that there's a, a small proportion of people who stayed on the northern border. I'm sure there's a small proportion of people who crossed illegally and stayed illegal. And um, But for, for us, most of the people that we've been in contact with are either in America and have claimed asylum um, and are waiting for their court dates or they've returned home. So people have successfully been able to claim asylum despite now all the obstacles in place there. They've been able to claim asylum. They've not been granted asylum status, though. I see. So they're waiting for their their decision. Okay. Yeah. And for people who may be moved to want to help in some way the experiences of people going through this process, what is a way for people to either donate money, donate time, donate some sort of aid to people who are surviving this terrible limbo, which I assume now has just been made even worse by the pandemic? I do the best way to provide um, assistance. I think I'm going to have to look it up and see what's actually... The, where, how the money gets to the people the best. But there are various people like um, Father Solalinde who runs a network of albergues throughout Mexico that I, I see tangible benefit given to the immigrants who are trying to cross um, Mexico. And what do you hope American viewers specifically take away from this film? My father, who passed away a few years ago, is, was a uh, two-time war refugee and an immigrant to this country. And you don't have to go very far back in America's history um, to find that most of most of the population have roots elsewhere. And we're, we're a country of immigrants, and that process is ongoing. Our economy depends on immigrant labor, uh, on foreign labor. And um, I, I, I think... I think most people are uh, capable and and want are, and want to be compassionate and understanding, and I th- they just need the information to understand how the world in reality how it works and to disengage themselves from the political rhetoric rhetoric that surrounds it. And so, what for me, what I'm hoping this film will do, um, any film that I've made, what I what I'm hoping it will do is separate people's understanding of the real world from the political rhetoric that they are forced to absorb in the media. And mm-hmm. that when that happens, what, something in their heart will open up um, and that they will have some, um, at least understanding, if not active compassion for situations that many people find themselves in. And that will guide, ultimately guide our, our policy towards other countries. Yeah, and I'd like to point out that um, no one wants to leave their house and you're seeing this different types of people making maybe smaller migrations, but there seemed to be an exodus from New York because of mm. the pandemic. Um, being in downtown New York at the moment, uh, driving through Midtown is, um, is a sobering experience because there's no people on the streets. There's no rush hour. There's empty shops everywhere. There's empty sandwich shops. There's entry restaurants. And you're going to see climate migrants from Oregon and Northern California. So, when people feel that it's too dangerous for them to stay in their homes, 
they're forced to make this choice of leaving. And it may be because of climate change in Honduras as well as in Northern California and Oregon. It may be um, personal security or mass insecurity in the Northern Triangle in Guatemala, in El Salvador and Honduras. Um, or it may be the pandemic, but the pandemic is a push factor away from America at the moment. Hmm. No one wants to risk being ill when they're already the most vulnerable people in that society. Hmm. Well, in the, in the last year has, has proven so difficult, and it's because many Americans have never been inconvenienced this way before. They've never had to worry about clean air and access to food and being healthy. So hopefully if this year teaches us anything, it's this is what it feels like for some people every day of their lives around the world. So that's that's if there is a silver lining, I hope that's what it is. <laughs> and in a film like this, I think really is perfect timing. And we're so honored that you took the time to talk about it with us today. So congratulations. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. I'd like to thank Sebastian Younger and Nick Quested for joining me today. For more information on Blood on the Wall, please visit bloodonthewall.film. I'm Stacey Wilson-Hunt, and this has been The Making of, a Nat Geo podcast. Thank you for listening. The Making of, a Nat Geo podcast is a National Geographic production. Executive producers Stephanie Montgomery and Chris Alpert, hosted by Stacey Wilson-Hunt, written and produced by Dave Beesing, Ted Woods, Jason Jackson, Kevin Horton, and Stacey Wilson-Hunt. Associate producer, Shanna Blackman. Production coordinator, Juliana Parisi. And in association with Benstown, McVeigh Media, and Sound That Brands.